This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Carlos Rivera, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, at Carlos is the very first Commonwealth uh, CDO. He was also served as the very first Chief Data Officer and Chief Enterprise Architect for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Transit and Administration in Washington, D.C. Mr. Rivero also has worked at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration as a physical scientist and a research associate at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. This is where he developed a passion for geospatial information systems, ecological modeling, and data. Wow, that is uh, quite a journey. Welcome to Leaders and Legends, Carlos. Thank you, Aileen. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start right from the start, uh, focusing on leadership. Can can you describe your leadership style? How do you approach being a leader? So I try to lead by example, and I won't ask anyone to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. My leadership style is consistent, but my approach will differ depending on the personality of the individuals that I'm dealing with. People learn and respond in different ways, and you have to take that into account when you're engaging with your colleagues and stakeholders. I mean, every day in this position is a challenge. You know, I do not have any authority over the executive branch agencies and localities in the Commonwealth. This is not a command and control environment. So you must be able to influence and persuade people to do the right things for the greater good. And sometimes that means they have to sacrifice the actions that are most aligned with their own interests. So this, you know, obviously can be accomplished, but it, it requires that you establish and nurture relationships with your stakeholders through respect and trust. And that's pretty much how I approach all of the relationships is building out those relationships through respect and trust first and foremost, and then start to identify, okay, what are your learning styles and, and kind of approach people in different ways. And sometimes, cause I'm, and you, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how I went from extrovert to introvert and extrovert back again. But um, I realized that, you know, sometimes as an extrovert, I come on pretty strong. And so in those cases, I have to be able to tone it down and, and allow people to express themselves. And so what I've learned over the years as a leader is to listen more than talk, right? Or more than command or more than issue orders or things like that, right? So it's be able to really pay attention to not just what people are saying, but how they're feeling, what, the, what their body uh, language looks like, right? And then be able to take those cues and then get the bigger picture of what's happening and then respond accordingly. So a big thing that I also just try to do is respond and not react, right? And there, there's a big difference in those two. So let's talk about those, those times that you faced an obstacle and maybe a, a, an audience that comes from a different background. So do you have any stories that you can share or lessons learned about how you face these challenges with leadership? I mean, you're, you're driving change. And when you're driving change, like you said, you, you need to understand the person on the other side of the table. So is there anything you can share? Yes, yeah, so absolutely. Um, so one of the things, leadership matters and it matters immensely. Um, when you have a void in leadership or you have lack of leadership, um, you know, it, it really throws the whole organization for a loop. People don't know how to relate to each other. 
And so that kind of happened to me um, early in my career. I don't say like one third of the way in my career, if I were to be more specific, um, when I did find a significant lack of leadership that actually changed my personality. Um, I mean, I, I think most of you kind of view me as more of an extrovert kind of person. I'm very outgoing and very outspoken. Um, but for a long time in my career, I was very self-reliant, self-focused, um, didn't rely on anyone, didn't really reach out for support, didn't really reach out for help because I didn't feel like it was there, right? I didn't feel like I was going to be supported. I was going to be um, assisted in the things that we were doing. And so as a result, you know, I became very closed off and, and very kind of doomsday prepperish, right? Where you think you can tackle the world and take on all the world's problems by yourself. And the reality is you can't, right? There's just no way you can do that. And so realizing that and, and through relationships that I had cultivated at the time with some mentors um, really got me to the point where I realized like, wow, this, this environment is changing who I am. I need to change. I need to move out of this environment. Like I try, you know, obviously you try first and foremost to make, you know, be the change that you want to see, right? And, and the reality is if the environment itself is not conducive to the change that you want to make in your life, then you need to change the environment. Um, and, and that was one of the big things that I learned early, in my, early on in my career that, you know, you can't fight the current. Um, it's just, if that's the way that the organization is flowing and you really want to go in a different direction, um, sometimes you have to change, you have to change, uh, you have to change streams to, to be in the right place for yourself. So um, I, it was an interesting comment on your LinkedIn page. You said that you had a mentor in your life that really changed or, or lit the fire for your passion for geospatial. And that was, was that, um, you know, an example of where you swam with the current and realized you liked the swim? I mean, tell me about that. So, I mean, I've had a wide variety of, of mentors in my life. And, and I think, well, the first one that I'd like to, to you know, share with you guys is, uh, is, you know, a college professor that I had. And, and I was at a crossroads, right, between selecting, at the time, environmental engineering versus environmental science, right, and ecology more specifically. Um, and, and, you know, his response to me was, was right on point. He was like, look, I'm not going to tell you which one to pick. That's, that's a personal decision for you. But what I would offer is that you would pick the one that you would do for the rest of your life for free. And, and that, I mean, that might seem like pretty, you know, commonplace kind of, uh, you know, uh, insight. But for me, it struck pretty hard because, you know, I, I didn't grow up in an affluent family. My dad was, you know, uh, an immigrant from, from another country and he worked really, really hard and, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. So for me, you know, making money and being successful meant making a lot of money. Um, but, you know, this comment really kind of threw me for a loop in the sense of like, you know, be, be mindful of what you value, because that is where it's going to steer you as you make decisions moving forward in your life. And, and so it was, such a, it was such a succinct and small comment, but it really kind of paved the way for what my career was going to become as I continue to make decisions moving forward. Um, on that note, the other mentor that I had was um, a, a colleague in NOAA that uh, he was part of the executive uh, leadership uh, mentoring, uh, mentoring uh, squad, if you will, when I was in the development program. And um, he, he, was up, he was the one that helped me to see that the environment wasn't conducive for, um, for the kind of work that I was doing and, the, and my personality and, and the way that I am. And so he actually reached out to a colleague and said, hey, I have this individual who's really good at this and this and this. Uh, would you be interested? 
And, and they were like, oh yeah, please have them give me a call. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, I already spoke to this person on your behalf. You might want to give him a call. And I felt at that point compelled to go ahead and call this person and set this up, which obviously led to all the other things that have happened in my life after that. Um, so, you know, you, you never know what, what small action you might take in someone's life that's going to have an immense impact. And, and that's what I kind of bring to that table with regards to mentoring is, you know, what are, what are some of the things that I can do um, to, to positively influence the life of another and, and use that as, as, you know, as a purpose in, in your life as you move forward? So you, you, you brought up the, 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 the role of a mentor, but in some ways, what you just described is a role of a sponsor, right? Somebody who, who, who rolls in, do you, do you mentor or sponsor, um, you know, folks today? Yeah, absolutely. And so not only do we have the Commonwealth Data Internship Program, where we connect with students across a wide variety of different academic institutions in the Commonwealth to give them professional experiences, working with agencies to do you know, real world work, right? Build up their portfolios, but also more important than that is the relationships that they build and the exposure that they get to professionals in the field, right? And being able to learn firsthand what it feels like to work for these organizations and do the type of work that we do. I think that's something that, that is, you know, you can't get that anywhere else, right? You can't get that experience anywhere. In addition to that, we also hire some of these students to work on projects for us within the now Office of Data Governance and Analytics. Um, so we, we do as much as we can to create that supportive, inclusive environment that allows students to come in, feel supported, feel empowered to interact with everyone and anyone in the capacities that, that they're working in so that they can get a feel for what this industry is like, whether or not they, they wanna do this job or they feel like they might wanna do another job. You know, it's getting that, that preview, if you will, of what life would be like working in these positions, which I think gives them a very valuable uh, insight into you know, what is it that they want for their own lives and how do, what are the decisions that they need to make to move them in the right direction. Um, so we, we try to engage with the next generation of, of professionals as much as we possibly can and, uh, and, and value their insight and contributions. Carlos, uh, you know, I have four kids and I, I, I've tried very hard for them to, to do public service. You know, I love working with the government because who wouldn't, you, you know, you're, you're mission oriented, you're getting little lady checks, you're helping teach children, you know, you're finding ways of making sure that vaccines are readily available across the Commonwealth. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Plus the ability to be able to really get that exposure and responsibility very early in your career. Is there, um, is there a uh, information uh, site or if one of our listeners is listening to this and would like to get involved in the mentor program, um, is there a, a link or, or a location that they can get more information? Yeah, so absolutely. They can always go to cdo.virginia.gov. And that's where you can find all information about the work that we're doing and, and how we work with students. But there's also vip.virginia.gov slash CDIP, C-D-I-P. Mm -hmm. And that's where the actual uh, CDIP program is administered. And so we work with VIP and VITA, uh, Virginia Information Technologies Agency, um, to run that program. So they run the program. We benefit from it by working with students and bringing them into our, uh, our environment. 
I'll be sure to add it to the write up for the show for those of you that would like to find out more information so that you can reach that link. I'm, uh, I'm speaking with Carlos Rivera, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Carlos Rivera, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. What is the most important type of decisions, Carlos, that you can make as a leader of your organization. There's many different kinds of uh, decisions that can be made, but as being a leader, what do you feel is the most valuable? Picking who is part of your team. That I think that is the most valuable decision you have to make as a leader is who are the individuals that are gonna share this work with you and, and making sure that they fit into the culture that you have. Do you, uh, how do you approach uh, what to decide? Do you, do you, do you, do you as, a, as, as a normal practice, you know, uh, decision by committee or do you find yourself in more of a style where you make the decisions yourself? So, I mean, in some cases you have to have decision by committee because there are councils and commissions and things that we've created as part of our data governance framework that really kind of empowers the larger organization to make decisions on behalf of the greater good, right? On behalf of the, the common good or the, the different members of, of the data trust in this case. Uh, but as a leader, you ultimately make decisions, but you have to take input from your stakeholders, right? Everyone's voice must be heard. You know, it doesn't mean that everyone's opinion will be incorporated into the decision, but that everyone's opinion had an opportunity to be voiced and, and the thoughts and concerns were put on the table and address right now you know being inclusive and learning to respect and value the opinions and perspective of others being willing to compromise and understand that you may not have all the answers but also be accountable for the things you say and the actions you take are all incredibly important characteristics that we as leaders need to embody right it's not just about making the decision and then slamming your hand down and be done with it you know you have to be able to understand that different people and everyone's unique right so we all come from different perspectives, different experiences, different backgrounds, and, and, and appreciate that, you know, there are contributions that are being made by a wide variety of different folks that, you know, you need, you as a leader need to take into account. Now, at the end of the day, you still are responsible for making that decision, and you are also accountable for the consequences that result from that decision. And, and one of the things that I like to say to, to the folks that work with me, my colleagues, is that, you know, our agreement as your leader is that you take the credit and I take the blame, right? And that's how it is. Um, and so regardless of how the decisions come out in terms of, you know, their actions or the consequences that are resulting, you know, the leader is always accountable and responsible for what happens, but the colleagues and your, your stakeholders are the ones that reap the benefit. So you brought up diversity and um, I come from a diverse background and you shared earlier that you come from a diverse background. By creating that type of environment, do you feel that people feel more um, open and able to share uh, no matter where, even if they don't look alike, uh, the rest of the people around the table? Absolutely. I mean, I, I hope so, right? Um, I think one of the things, and I read this in an article a few years back, you know, psychological safety, right? Being able to feel free and secure in your position and, and, in, and in the group that you're in to be able to voice your concerns, your opinions, your thoughts, your ideas. 
Um, and I think, you know, as, as a leader, when I have my meetings with all of the folks that I work with, I'm always asking people, you know, what do you think? What do you think? What are your thoughts on this? You know, how do you feel about this? Um, because I think it's very important, especially for those that aren't necessarily expressive, um, to, you know, bring their thoughts to the table. But in addition to that, like some folks just are just naturally shy and don't want to voice their opinion in, in a common format. So, you know, having that level of awareness, you can then, you know, understand, okay, they might have, especially by their body language is really funny. And it's very interesting because now we're in a virtual world and we don't really, you know, meet in person anymore. So body language isn't exactly something that you can read unless you're on video. But being attuned to, you know, sometimes their facial expressions or the body language helps to kind of like, all right, they're not feeling comfortable with the conversation of how it's going. I'm not going to call them out right now, but I am going to follow up with them later to say, hey, what are your thoughts, right? And then be able to include them that way. So you, you have to be inclusive, but you also have to be aware of how different people are going to respond to conversations, to the dynamic of the group, and then include them in the most appropriate way. Peter Drucker, um, you know, a famous uh, legendary management consultant, uh, one of his most famous quotes is culture eats strategy for breakfast. What do you believe is the relationship between leadership and culture? And how does it affect the culture of your organization? So that's so funny that you should ask that because I, I use that quote all the time. I mean, in addition, a few years ago, I heard uh, in addition to that quote that I've copied ever since. So uh, one of our speakers at our Women in Innovation event said that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but it also eats technology and innovation for lunch and dinner. And I wish I, rem I could remember who said it because I would love to credit her with that quote. But essentially, you know, I 100% agree with that statement. It doesn't matter how great your strategy may be or how cool the technology is or how innovative you are. It's all useless if people don't adopt and support it, which brings us to culture, right? A positive, supportive culture is so important to develop and nurture within your organization. Your success depends on it. Essentially, you know, culture is the sum of the behavior of the individuals in your organization. Thus, you are trying to change behavior at the individual level, which is incredibly difficult since we're all unique, which is why building relationships based on respect, trust, inclusion, compassion, support are so critical to establishing that culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Carlos Rivero, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Carlos, you are the Chief Data Officer. I think it was the first Chief Data Officer. You know, what drew you to the mission of being a Chief Data Officer? That, that's a journey. Um, it, I mean, you mentioned it earlier in, in my bio where I started at the University of Miami uh, Rosenstiel School. Um, and, and doing, you know, working in GIS and, and just, and for me, GIS is, is way back when was this just big data tool, right? It was just a way for us to integrate data sets from a wide variety of different disciplines and industries and themes and so on and so forth with the only common key being its spatial location, right? And so later on, as I grew in my career and realized that, you know, relational databases and all the wonderful, you know, entity relationships are involved in all that. But going back to looking at, you know, GIS and, and the spatial dynamics and how all of that correlates with the work that I'm doing now. And, and the fact that I'm a very visual learner and I'm, I was always in love with maps and things like that was, was kind of like the, the universe giving me this wonderful gift 
to saying, here, I put you in this great location, you know, go off and, and do your best, right? Do, you know, do the thing that you love to do the most. And so as a result of that, I really grew a passion for leveraging data in a wide variety of different vehicles, different analyses, different projects, different, you know, things that we were doing. And so, you know, I had a lot of experience working with different people in many disciplines, implementing GIS, right? And implementing data and, and leveraging data. And ultimately, as I grew in my career, I started to realize that, you know, the value in leveraging data is not the data in and of itself, but the intelligence that's derived from it. And how do you get to that intelligence, right? And so I ultimately, over the years, developed the data value chain where, you know, the bits and bytes that are, that are the data that you're looking at are nothing more than a binary representation of what's happening in the real world, right? And so something is happening in the real world, it's being captured in a system somewhere, and then it's being represented by these, you know, binary digits in this digital format. But then it isn't until someone with a very specific perspective looks at that data and then interprets it for information, right? Creates information out of data. And we oftentimes use, you know, information and data as synonyms and they're not, right? They're completely different things. And so when you interpret that data and it becomes information, then you then have the ability to digest that information and start to understand what are the patterns and trends and mechanisms that are underlying that phenomenon that are creating the digital representations of the data that you're seeing, right? So having that understanding of the patterns and trends and mechanisms becomes knowledge, right? So now you have that knowledge that you can use to make better decisions. But unless you incorporate that knowledge into the decision-making framework of the organization, it doesn't become intelligence, right? And so being able to look at that as a very logical flow of how data bec becomes intelligence became like one of the more inspiring capabilities in my career. And being able to do that effectively in many different organizations and many different industries became something that I was just very good at. And, um, and I'm very happy to do it because I love empowering people to make the best decisions that they can, not just for their organization, but for themselves. And I think that's what really draws me to public service is that at the end of the day, you're really trying to empower individuals to live their best lives. And, and whether you're doing that through the provision of government services, or you're doing that through the provision of information that ultimately becomes intelligence that they can use to make better decisions about, you know, how do they respond to this COVID pandemic, right? Do they need to go get tested if they've been exposed to someone? You know, things like that, that, you know, at the very core, it's just really empowering people to make the best decisions for themselves. You're talking about changing the way people make decisions from, uh, you know, maybe more historical models, but now being data driven, um, you know, using data to help drive that decision, as you put it, as a path to making it into knowledge. How, how have you been able to, in the state of the Commonwealth, I'm sorry, of Virginia, uh, you know, change that thought process? I mean, like you said earlier, you don't own the budgets, so you're you're influencing people to see the value of this knowledge versus the data in itself. That, I mean, that is the, the question, right? And, and so I, I would love to say if there's a recipe for it and if you follow the recipe, it'll work out. But the reality is that there isn't a recipe. You, the first thing I did when I came to the Commonwealth is really listen. You know, I, I sat for a, a good two months meeting people, you know, I wouldn't say interviewing them, but just really getting to know them. And, and identifying what are their pain points, not just from an organizational perspective, but also from a personal perspective. Um, trying to build up that understanding of what are the common needs and pain points 
of the Commonwealth of Virginia and then be able to come up with a strategy that's going to fill in those blanks and give people the capabilities and, and the, the, um, the tools that they needed to become more data-driven. I think within Virginia, there was already that recognition that, hey, we need to be more data-driven. We have a lot of data assets. We're just not bringing them together. We're not leveraging them appropriately. So there's already this common awareness amongst legislators, among cabinet secretaries, among the governor's staff, that you know, we needed to be able to leverage our data assets better. But the question was how, right? And so through that process of listening and understanding and, and getting a better feel for what had already been done historically, right? Because you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And being able to look at what had already been done in the Commonwealth prior to my arrival and then be able to see, okay, why did this fail? Why isn't this here? Well, this was great, but how can we make it even better? And then be able to bring those resources together and do that. And then at the same time, identify who have been, who are those champions that I would need to continue to work with to, to help them move their agenda forward as well. So it's really about supporting each other in this overall mission to become more data-driven, to be able to leverage our data assets to make those uh, you know, very important decisions that affect millions of people across the Commonwealth. I'm speaking with Carlos Rivero, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Carlos Rivero, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, you know, we talked about uh, in this in the segment uh, uh, earlier about getting people to adopt change. Um, it's sometimes the biggest leadership challenges. So. We talked about you know trust and, and building relationships, but what is your strategy to keep your team focused on sometimes doing something that others believed is impossible? How do you how do you get your team to embrace that change formula to have it make it happen? Because certainly changing the way people think and driving their decisions based on data versus more traditional methods that's a pretty big nut to crack. It is. It is, and they have to believe in in the vision. Um, you have to establish a clear vision for what it is you want to, what is the end state? Where is it that you want us to be in a year, two years from now, and then have that mission aligned with the vision. So the things that you do have to be aligned with where you want to go, where you want to end up and being able to communicate that effectively and, and get everyone excited about it. Um, I think is, is the, the most important thing. And I mean, I can, I can honestly tell you that when I came into this, into this job, um, I, I did not hesitate to share my vision with people. And I can guarantee you that most of the folks that I talked to probably thought I was crazy. Um, and, and especially given that I had zero staff and zero budget at the time that I was vehemently expressing this magical vision that I had for the Commonwealth. Um, and fast forward less than three years later, we've accomplished that vision. Um, and we're able to use it in our response to the pandemic very successfully, I would think. And, um, and I think that, I, that has really created a lot more support um, than, than I originally anticipated. Um, and, and it is very difficult, especially in the public sector where, where things generally move very, very slowly. And you know, getting the support of, of folks that have been, you know, have been towing the, the line for a long, long time 
trying to get the organizations to become more data driven. And I think, you know, one of the problems that I discovered early on were that, you know, there were champions within agencies that were, you know, very, very supportive of the work that we're doing, but they felt stymied. They felt like there wasn't any leadership that was supporting them. They felt like they were in isolation that really couldn't get the, some of the things that they wanted to off the ground. And, and so I was able to work with them and, and, and incorporate them into this larger vision of where I wanted us to be. And I originally was thinking three to five years and it turned out to be one to two, but um, you know, where I wanted us to be in three to five years. And, and they were, you know, they were very excited that it was aligned with where they wanted to be in three to five years. And so working together, we've been able to really move this organization forward. Um, I by no means say this is a one person effort. You know, it, it has absolutely been a team effort this whole entire time. And, and getting people to you know, be excited about something and, and, and give their energy to it is I think why, why we've been successful. You brought up that sometimes the process um, when you're a, a government uh, entity sometimes can be slower and, and have more rules around it. Do you find there's a difference for, between being a federal leader versus a state leader? I mean, you have had experience uh, at both, um, or, you know, both type of roles. Yeah, I definitely uh, believe that there's differences in state and federal. In federal, you're more uh, segmented out from the legislative side of the house and um, there isn't that interaction as you have in, in state uh, leadership roles. Um, here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I have conversations with senators and delegates all the time, and and we work you know together and we identify you know points of 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 you know contention that we need to work through, but then we also identify many similarities that you know we we you know we align with and and see that our interests are the same. And I think having that exposure to individuals to our stakeholders that are you know very much. Uh, involved in the process is, is a key aspect to being successful. Um, you can't do this work in a vacuum, right? You have to have the, the opinions and thoughts and ideas of others that, especially those that are either involved in the decision-making process or are stakeholders that are receiving some of the services or, or experiencing some of the outcomes that are resulting of the actions that you're taking. So as a result of that, I think that having that intimacy within uh, state government to be able to work with a wide variety of folks in, in commonly um, is, is a very big distinction uh, between federal and, and state. Now, obviously in the state, in, in, in the federal environment, you do have some of those folks that work at the, at the much higher levels that, are, that may on occasion have interaction with Congress. But the reality is that that, that relationship is very segmented, uh, it's very sectioned off, and, and you don't, and, and those timescales are even longer than state timescales. You know, federal timescales, sometimes you're talking about a decade by the time you see the actions that you've, you know, committed today result in outcomes tomorrow. Uh, whereas in, in the state, it's, it's a lot faster turnaround time. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for government executives uh, next, now that we're seeing the end of the pandemic? <laughs> I mean, you know, it certainly has um, increased the momentum for the agenda for creating a, a data-driven uh, culture because of the results that we found. Just even getting, I know uh, in working with uh, several federal agencies, just getting the proper materials out to, to help those in need um, and getting them faster, finding them. Um, you know, the organizations that had uh, their data house in order 
were able to be have the agility to to act. Um, what do you think is the the next big challenge? I know I read about um, some of the work that you did about the uh, opioid e epidemic, which is huge in the huge in anywhere, but uh, certainly is a overwhelming uh, an overwhelming problem here in the Commonwealth. To tell me, are you, are you going to focus on that next? What's next? So I think really the biggest challenge that we're facing as leaders is recognizing that we live in a digital world. Um, you know, the, the analog world pre-pandemic where, you know, everyone traveled to a common location to work together and have FaceTime with each other and interact in that capacity uh, is no longer the norm. Um, and I know that there are many leaders that are, that are refusing to believe that and want to think that they can go back to life as, as it was before. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, we live in a digital world. We have a very significant digital economy that needs to be nurtured and needs to be inclusive. Um, we talked quite a bit about the digital economy before the pandemic hit, where, you know, we were talking about the broadband divide and not having, you know, not having people have access to broadband is a huge disservice to those communities. And so, you know, for a long time, we've been, you know, uh, minimizing the investment in, in broadband expansion because, you know, there wasn't this perceived need, um, you know, for whatever reason. But most those of us that were more forward thinking and realizing that we have been living in a digital world and, you know, working in a digital economy. Um, have, have really pushed on that aspect of it. And I think the pandemic has really brought that to light, especially when you have communities that predominantly are inhabited by people that are knowledge workers who have the ability to work from home. And then you have communities that don't have those, that same percentage of knowledge workers. So in those communities that do, you don't, you don't see an economic impact as severe as you've seen in some of these other communities that don't have it, right? And so it's that disparity of, of not being able to engage in the digital economy that has really been highlighted by the pandemic. And so moving forward, I would like to see more leaders embrace the fact that we do live in a digital world and we do need to be more inclusive, not just from a cultural and, and socioeconomic perspective, but also from a digital perspective and be able to be willing to make those investments to get everyone onto that same, onto that same economy so that we don't have two economies, right? We have one economy that serves everyone instead of one that's really great and, and serves a, you know, a handful of people and one that's not so great and then you know, leaves people exposed to these types of, of impacts. I'm gonna vote for you. Uh, I'm <laughs> not running for anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Annalene Black and today I'm talking with Carlos Rivero, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Next, we'll find out what Carlos's advice to the next generation. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Carlos Rivero, Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, we talked about your uh, a little bit about the fact that you at one point and was that you taught. Um, how did you get in technology or more specific data science? Because you certainly, your career certainly isn't a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a straight line. Um, it, and it's really been driven by the experiences that I've had and, and the passions um, that I've had over, over the years. Um, initially, like I said, I mean, 
you know, I had uh, an interest in, in environmental uh, engineering. Uh, then I went into environmental science and more specifically uh, systems and landscape ecology. Um, I got into GIS um, and, and that really started the ball rolling with, you know, how to leverage data to make decisions. And, and you know, there's so many cool things about GIS, at the, in, especially in the early years of just making things work. Um, and, and to me, I think, you know, one of the passions that I have is solving problems and, and being able to identify, you know, someone comes to your problems, like, I really want to be able to do this, but I have no idea how, how I can make it work. And being able to just dig in and, and find the solution is just for me so gratifying uh, and so fulfilling that it just became a pattern in my life. And, and so data science, I mean, it was data science before it was data, it was before it was called data science. And when I saw that, you know, Harvard Business Review uh, article or, or the, 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 the cover of that, of that uh, article, I was just like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, I feel pretty good about myself being a little nerd in the closet, um, you know, doing all these, you know, algorithms and, and models and things. Um, you know, it makes you feel a little bit better about, you know, being, being the, the number cruncher, if you will. Um, but it was something that just, you know, it, it, I was always inspired to solve problems, especially mathematical uh, problems. And so when we when we're working on large scale e ecological models in, in various landscapes, you know, in, in Florida Bay and Tampa Bay and, and Biscayne Bay in my early career, um, that became like a really big passion for me. Um, and obviously, I started an environment, right? And and then you know branched out and I did some work um, doing some um, digital transformations for some satellite tagging of of highly migratory species, you know, sea turtles, uh, mammals. Um, you know, large sharks, um, billfish, you know, sailfish, swordfish, things like that. Um, and that became kind of like a way for me to empower others, to be of service to others. And in this case, I was in service to the scientists that were doing these analyses, these studies, that they were trying to get a better understanding of how anthropo anthropomorphic effects are affecting the population of these different, uh, in, you know, species. And so I'm not the one actually doing the, the work on the species themselves, but I'm facilitating that work. And I think for me that early on in my career that really um, you know, inspired me to be of service to as many people as I possibly can. And, and especially in the technology space where there's you know, in, in science and business, um, there's this you know, big uh, chasm between the mission goals and the technology implementations. And so my career has always been more about bringing those two together being able to work with the business for the mission and then be able to implement technology that's going to help them move forward. Uh, so never really been a technologist per se uh, and, and never just completely been on the business side per se, but always sat right in the middle as a liaison, kind of bridging the two worlds together. The Biden administration clearly wants to keep America in the lead for innovation and technology. Um, you know, you're sitting in a, a very unique uh, seat to be able to see um, maybe what the hottest areas um, and where maybe the next generation should invest their time and energy to learn. Um, what do you think uh, will be the hottest funding era, eras, uh, especially for the Commonwealth? And, uh, you know, where, you know, th there may be some um, uh, really hot employment opportunities. So I think investing in our data infrastructure is critical. And I know that's self-serving because I'm a data officer, um, you know, so. But having said that though, it, it, it is, I mean, again, going back to what we were talking about, right? It's not the data in and of itself. It's what you can do with it, right? The intelligence that you can derive from those data assets. And so being able to invest in our data infrastructure and our ability to generate intelligence from 
those data assets is really where we need to go next. And we talk a lot about AI, ML, and all these wonderful things, but these are just tools that allow us to sift and sort through vast volumes and variety of data sources and assets to come up with that intelligence that's gonna help us move forward in whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And so having said that, you know, being able to look at the full data pipeline and how that data pipeline, whether it's system modernization or process re-engineering or whatever, it's being able to facilitate how that data becomes intelligence and get that intelligence to the right people, whether they're operational stakeholders on the front lines interacting with, with our you know, service recipients or their tactical middle level managers that are making decisions about how the budget needs to be spent and how who needs to be hired when, or their executives trying to make strategic decisions about where the organization needs to go five to 10 years from now. Each of those roles needs to have the appropriate intelligence to make the best decisions for themselves and their organization. And the more we can facilitate the transfer of those data assets and the translation of those assets into intelligence, I think the better off we will be. Your career and success have truly been inspirational and thank you for your commitment to service. Do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would have for the next generation of leaders? Well, I mean, I can, I can only pass on what was given to me, right? And, and find your passion and, you know, and, and pursue it. And the interesting thing about passion is that, you know, you never really know you're passionate about something until you're good at it. And you're not going to get good at it until you practice, right? So practice precedes passion, right? And, and being able to, to allow yourself the ability to take the time to work hard and cultivate those skills in yourself to truly find what you're passionate about is, is what I would offer the next generation. I know we, we talk quite a bit about millennials and, and the instant gratification culture uh, that has derived from our social media experiences. Uh, but the reality is that there's no substitute for hard work. And, and the more you're willing to invest of yourself and your energy into something, uh, the more you're likely to get out of it. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Carlos Rivero. Carlos, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. Thank you, Eileen. It's been my pleasure. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Eileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.